Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. Team Buck, welcome to the Freedom Hut. Great to have you here. Honor, privilege, pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. As always, excited to hang out with you. 844-900-BUCK. That is 844-900-2825. Much to discuss today, including, of course, the uh, impending crisis with North Korea. Uh, We will actually later on, I'll talk to you a bit about it this hour, later on in the show, uh, we'll both war game it a bit and then talk about some of the technicalities, the missiles, the weapons involved. And that'll come later in the show. We'll return to the issue of North Korea. I want to talk mostly about the politics and the strategy side of it, the messaging side of it today or right now. Um, but also keep in mind, we will get to the continuing fallout from the firing of that guy in Google for writing about the. Uh, evolutionary biology differences and or choices and or realities of women and men in the workplace in technology. Some very interesting stuff happening there. Uh, And also, if we have time, perhaps I will speak to you about uh, the fact that Chelsea Manning is posing on the cover of Vogue in a bathing suit. Uh, the world really has, or at least the fashion world and the the left, the progressive artsy left has completely lost its mind. But you probably already knew that. Uh, and I'll give you some thoughts on not, uh, we, we may talk about the opioid crisis again today, but I want to talk to you about another public health crisis that is being overshadowed by the opioid crisis right now. And it's one that I uh, would think is uh, something that you will have your own stories, your own uh, associations and memories and uh, struggles with. Uh, we'll get there later on in the show as well. Uh, so we've got, as we always do, much, much to discuss today. But let's start with what's going on with North Korea. The president is standing up to a bully. Kim Jong-un, the North Korean regime, this hyper-militaristic, uh, racist, fascist state of North Korea is bullying its neighbors, bullying South Korea, and trying to both bully and uh, blackmail the world. And we've seen successive administrations uh, say they're handling the problem, but do nothing really to stop the problem. In fact, it continues to get worse. I mean, here's the way that when you have a Democrat in the White House, here's the way that the news media reports on a North Korea deal. This was back in 1994. The Clinton administration, Madeleine Albright, they were supposed to be so wise on foreign policy matters, so erudite, so schooled in all the different intricacies of this incredibly uh, complex world of high-stakes diplomacy. And this is the way that the networks talked about it back in 94. 
President Clinton today officially announced a deal that could end the long-running crisis with North Korea over nuclear weapons. It could also ease tensions on the Korean Peninsula and open the way for normal relations between the U.S. and one of the world's last old-line, hard-line communist states. North Korea has finally cut a deal that, if carried out, would keep it from developing a nuclear arsenal. All right, so you'll you notice the, the way that this is set up, and that was, of course, National Guard documents rather himself. Uh, it, it could normalize relations. It could end this conflict. It could make everything better. A very positive tone from rather in 94 when cbs had an an enormous viewership cbs evening news in the early 90s there was so much less competition and the broadcast networks were able to really dictate the news narrative for anybody who's getting their news from tvs it's also pre-internet although i guess some folks had you know CompuServe or something uh but you know hello remember that aol uh i think uh, yeah CompuServe was way back in the day but it was pre-internet so you had the major newspapers which are all left and you had the broadcast news networks, which were all left. And Dan Rather there taking this very optimist, optimistic at best, uh, or, or is the nicest way to say it, I should say, is very optimistic approach to the North Korea deal. And, and of course, we find out later on, Kim Jong-il lied, cheated, stole. The whole thing was a sham. It was all a sham. And, has, and they've done this time and time again. The North Koreans... The leadership, the dear leader, they have done this to us with minimal consequences. We can talk about economic consequences for the regime, but keep in mind, what pain does that really inflict on the North Koreans who sit atop the rest of the populace, engorging themselves while the rest of the country is a slave state? Do you really think that there's been a single night that Kim Jong-il or Kim Jong-un from the Clinton era on has been particularly worried about, well, certainly not where his next meal will come from, but worried about much of anything that we were doing. I think they've been laughing at us. And I think they have reason to laugh at our policies because we have been so ineffective. We have been ineffectual in achieving the goal of boxing in North Korea. We are supposed to contain them. We are supposed to deter them. And we are supposed to eventually end this totalitarian kleptocratic regime uh, of of sadists to call them psychopathic may be a bit imprecise because they do operate on some rational level but they are sadistic um, and and it is a, a truly evil and to call it part of the axis of evil was a very accurate description from the george w bush administration um, but here we are here we are now after decades of the same failed approach in diplomacy after being told that everything would work out better. And so it's with that as a backdrop, it's with failure after failure and the problem of North Korea getting worse that we now have some portion of the media, a large portion of the media, I would argue, that is more worried about strong words from our president than the actual threat of North Korea destroying an entire city, including perhaps even a U.S. city. Now, I know that it may help us sleep a little better at night that we could destroy anybody, and it should. And I know that we may sleep more soundly with the uh, knowledge that we have some missile defense systems in place. But that doesn't mean that someone like Kim Jong-un would be unwilling to try and 
run the gauntlet, so to speak, and fire off a nuclear missile at us or one of our allies and see, you know, play his hand out, see how it goes. Maybe he just figures she'll retire into the bunker, they'll attack South Korea, and they'll deal with the aftermath. You don't know what their strategy is. I don't know what their strategy is. Nobody in the previous administrations has known what their strategy is, really. We have been outfoxed every step of the way by these guys. Enough is enough. And it's with that as a short, but I think reasonable and accurate backstory as to what's happened here. That we now look at the Trump administration, what it's saying, and you've got a portion of the media that's uh, more upset about Trump than anything else going on here. I mean, it is just, when will they wake up? If we can't have some semblance of bipartisan respect for the White House and the presidency when we're talking about the possibility of a nuclear strike on a U.S. city by a sadistic lunatic regime, I know I said lunatic, maybe that's too, but... They're living in really an alter, alternate reality, right? They are living in an alternate reality. So it's it's hard to gauge their sanity because they're, they're not connected to the world the way everybody else is. The North Koreans have constructed a, a true totalitarian state. It is, to borrow from Christopher Hitchens, as if somebody read 1984, Orwell's 1984, and said, maybe we could make this work. Let's give it a go. That is North Korea today. And they may be in a position to fire off nukes. And as I said to you, we will talk both about the missiles involved as well as some wargaming. But I want to hold that off till later in the show. We'll return to the topic of North Korea. For now, I am astounded to see the gall from some former Obama administration officials who now want to lecture the world on what should be done with North Korea and to point a finger at Trump and say that Trump is the problem. Trump is staring at the reality here, and Trump, who has General Mattis as his Secretary of Defense and has a core of people around him at the top echelon of the national security uh, apparatus who really know what they're doing, are brilliant strategic thinkers, and they're they're obviously all very concerned, too. They're willing to confront the threat. You see, the Obama administration's plan was to push all difficult problems off into the future, make it someone else's problem, do very little, and then watch as the you know literati and twitterati set of CNN and MSNBC and the various broadcast networks and major newspapers write flowery, glowing editorials about how brilliant Obama and his team of foreign foreign policy experts are. That was their foreign policy. Do nothing and talk about how brilliant you are for doing nothing. Push off the problem into the future. Procrastinate on issues of national security, including those of nuclear importance. That's what they were doing. And and now they reemerge already to tell us about how Trump is the problem. Oh, his rhetoric is so is so bellicose. Oh, this warmongering from Trump. How do we think, how are we supposed to have our commander-in-chief respond to someone who, through state media, which is the same as having a spokesman, their state media is the equivalent of a statement from the White House. We get that, right? Saying that they're going to engulf our allies in fire, saying they're going to take drastic measures against us, and we will you know, feel the power of their military might and yada yada, etc., all that crazy crap. How are we supposed to respond? As I said, Trump is confronting a bully, and the bully has to believe that Trump 
that this country, that our military, the best military, the most powerful military machine, not just on the planet, in the history of the planet. North Korea has to be willing to believe that we will throw a punch because otherwise it's just talk. Otherwise, we're the guy who's saying things as he's pushed out of the bar while his buddy's getting beaten up. Trump is doubling down on this rhetoric. In fact, today, this is what he had to say after saying yesterday there'll be fire and fury. The media got all upset at him. Well, this is what he had to say today. I think they, uh, it's the first time they've heard it like they heard it. Uh, and frankly, uh, the people that were questioning that statement, was it too tough? Maybe it wasn't tough enough. They've been doing this to our country for a long time, for many years. And it's about time that somebody stuck up for the people of this country and for the people of other countries. So uh, if anything, maybe that statement wasn't tough enough. And we're backed by 100 percent by our military. We're backed by everybody. And we're backed by many other leaders. And I noticed that many senators and others today came out very much in favor of what I said. But if anything, that statement may not be tough enough. May not be tough enough, he says. So words do matter. Everyone seems to agree on that right now. Words matter. And the president has decided that in the war of words with North Korea, he's not going to just sit by and let them create an atmosphere where it should be noted. They're always telling the North Korean government is always telling the North Korean people that they have beaten us, that they have schooled us, that we are afraid of them, and that it's just a matter of time before they retake South Korea, and that we are too cowardly to do anything about it. That's what this country with uh, a million man plus standing army and the greatest concentration of military force and artillery and conventional munitions uh, on the planet, really, at the DMZ, that's what they are convincing their people of all the time. And so we like to think that this is just a country that's on the brink of collapse, that there's no support, that there's no domestic uh, will in North Korea to try and attack the South, a replay of the Korean War. But the more we know, the more we know about what's going on in that country, the instability of the regime at the leadership level, and also the, the legitimacy crisis that looms ahead for North Korea as more of its own citizens see South Korea is actually prosperous. South Koreans have food. South Koreans have advanced technology. You told us, dear leader, that they were living in penury, that they were uh, puppets of the United States, that they were in misery. What's going on there? The North Koreans don't have a great answer for that. But you know what the answer could be? Oh, don't worry. That's just stuff that we'll take from them. Don't worry, we'll end that whole way of life because we are the true Korea and we will unite this peninsula under the dear leader. Crazy as it sounds to you, that is doctrine in North Korea. So Trump being willing to speak with some oomph and some some sound and fury is not meaningless, is not crazy. And I think a lot of people look around saying it's about time. Standing up to bullies is never easy. And it's never without risk. Has it been suggested you could have given them longer to bear fruit before threatening fire and fury? How long do you think it would, uh, uh, it'll take before 
we see some, uh, we see North Korea backing down thanks to these sanctions. Well, you know, look, I, I can't speculate as to what North Korea is going to do. Uh, we talked yesterday about our pressure campaign and how the pressure campaign is, in our opinion, working. We've had many countries, countries that we are close friends with and countries that we aren't as close with help participate in that pressure campaign. And that is because the world recognizes the severe threat that the DPRK faces, not just to the United States, but to the entire world. That's State Department spokeswoman uh, Heather Nauert, whom I actually know from when she was at Fox. Uh, She was a weekend host at Fox and Friends. Uh, She is crushing it as State Department spokeswoman. She is among the most effective communicators in the entire administration. I'm just being completely honest here. I watched uh, her, I actually watched it afterwards, the, the full press conference she gave, and she just does a, she's, does a phenomenal job. She's incredibly clear and effective. She's good at dealing with the press back and forth. I mean, I think she should be White House Communications Director, straight up. I mean, if, if I could give one bit of advice to the administration right now, Nauert, and she was always good at Fox. I didn't realize, I mean, she has policy chops. She is... Uh, she, she, I, I am very rarely impressed by people on the communication uh, on the community <laughs> on the come on, Bucks, say the English words on the communication side of the house. Um, I'm very rarely impressed. And she is she is impressive. Uh, she is a a, a public relations, uh, public facing administration all star already. So and I mean, at some point they should definitely make her press secretary. I mean, not right now. I think Sarah Huckabee Sanders is doing a good job. But if they wanted, if Sarah got tired in you know a year or two, they could make Heather press secretary. She'd do a great job. I mean, she was putting on a clinic the last two days. Uh, let's take John in Atlanta. What's up, John? Hi, Buck. Podcast minion checking in. Oh, thank you, sir. Shields high. Shields high. So a couple things. I, I, I could go on about a lot of different things. But first off, what Trump said is basically he's just reiterating the MAD mutually assured destruction um, policy that the U.S. has had since 1949 or 1951. Yeah, right? I was about to get to this, and I will after the, after the break a bit more, yeah. John. But everyone's saying Trump's rhetoric is so crazy. Susan Rice in her New York Times op-ed says, well, you know, if North Korea stand, steps out of line, we're going to annihilate them. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Is is that not warlike rhetoric? Well, yes, but you know she has a D next to her name. Right, exactly. But I mean, fire and fury. Whoa, that's too much. No, we'll that's... annihilate you. That's nice. That's like diplomacy speak. Yeah. Do you know what uh, happens when a thermonuclear weapon goes off? There is a lot of fire and fury. There is indeed. Oh, indeed. So, um, have you ever? seen that satellite photo of the korean of course i've posted on facebook before it's one of the best one of the best visualizations of freedom versus autocracy yeah thank you i do the same thing with capitalism versus communism so looking at that you can see that their infrastructure is next to nothing so just wargaming this if i was going to approach this can we not just do a massive emp or several emps around the north that would just fry everything that's electronic because how are they going to shoot uh, missiles into South Korea without guidance systems? They're not going to. John, be how about this? Off. I want to answer your question and I want to continue to talk to you about this and I don't want to shortchange this because this is very interesting. John in Atlanta, he was asking a question. John, thanks for holding through the break, asking a question about, uh, well, asking a wargaming question about North Korea. You asked about EMPs. Here's, and just as, as a caveat, I, I am not an EMP. 
expert. It's not something that I ever dealt with in my time uh, in the government. So I only know about it from what's in the open source. And, and that's where I'm able to do my research on it. Look, e- EMP is a, an emerging technology in terms of a, a, a weaponized usage of it. Um, it's obviously never been something that's uh, that's been deployed in a in a broad spectrum uh, combat, so or you know in wide scale combat usage. Uh, if it were, if it did give us the ability to knock out North Korea's uh, communications electronic infrastructure and then follow on with targeted strikes, that would certainly be a tremendous advantage. It may limit collateral damage. The problem, though, is that a lot of North Korea... So even assuming that, and I don't know how far along the spectrum we are in terms of uh, weaponized EMP to do that, right? Even assuming that we could... And I know that with that photo you see North Korea, you know, it doesn't doesn't glow in the dark. It's it's dark at night. there's enough conventional World War II style military stuff on the ground there that doesn't rely on anything uh, electronic that they could still kill tens of thousands of people, maybe hundreds of thousands of people in South Korea just with their artillery. You know what I mean? So that's so you'd have to keep that in mind, even if you you know, they're not entirely reliant on advanced weapon systems for mass civilian casualties. So if we were able to completely knock out North Korea's, albeit pretty minimal, uh, electronic grid, they still could fire off conventional weapons and do a lot of damage. Well, I figure if they've got tons of howitzers and things like that that just rely on moving parts. Yeah, they do. Electronic guidance systems, then yeah, that's uh, that's obviously... uh, a problem if they have missiles that rely on uh, computer-controlled firing, then those would be knocked out. So you make them eighty uh, percent less effective. And if that could be done, you look at that satellite photo; it's totally black. So it's not like you're wrecking an entire country and have to rebuild an entire electric grid. You're just taking out, you know, the city and whatever military assets, and then you use the air force to annihilate those howitzer positions and maybe the uh, uh, you know, command and control structures and all of that. And then you do a Berlin-style airdrop of food like these people have never seen because they're starving, like beyond our imagination as Americans. Yeah, I think, though, um, you also to keep in mind that, and this ties into what I said yesterday, that, that some analysts of North Korea point to the history of North Korea and its uh, identification with Japan uh, in terms of its uh, its r- racial background and superiority to mainland China uh, and its imperial Jap- it, it, its tendencies to see itself the sim in a similar fashion to how imperial Japan saw itself as a a racially superior uh, group. And that they would be very hard. It'd be very hard to force North Korea to surrender is what I'm saying. I think that you'd have a similar situation to the problem with Imperial Japan, where it was clear they were going to lose, but they decided that they were going to extract as much punishment from us along the way as this is why we had to drop two nuclear bombs. Right. Uh, with the North with North Korea, I worry that the hyper militarization of that state would mean that even highly effective uh, directed strikes at different parts of the country's infrastructure and military apparatus wouldn't be enough. It, it, it would they would keep fighting and fighting until I mean I don't even want to I don't even really want to think about it, but it would get it would get really ugly is what I'm trying to say. Sort of like when, before we were going to invade the mainland, they were they were training people in Japan to fight the U.S. soldiers with sharpened bamboo sticks and 
we had to crush their will to fight with the, uh, the yes that, that that's exactly what yeah. I'm saying is the will to fight of the North Korean out. people you know and I, I always have to point this out we we see the D uh, and by the way thank you for I know you're I hear you're you're a black rifle coffee fan by the way that's what the that's what producer Amy's well, telling me I call, yeah I called yeah by the way uh, she's the call screener she's marvelous I called yes she is we agree I was waiting on hold yeah I was well, I was waiting on hold you did a black rifle spot and I thought you were going to come to me and I was just going to say look I am not a paid person that coffee is marvelous and it's the best thing you can put in your Keurig machine they have Keurig cups and there's one that's called caffeinated as F if you know what I'm saying. Oh, yeah. No, and it's great. I have it. It comes in what looks like an ammo canister, and they, they look like rounds from a gun. And it's the best coffee I've ever put in my Keurig machine. See? A member of Team Buck. I, mean, I promise you he just called yes, it and said it himself. So I'm not, I'm, I, I agree with I, him, and I appreciate the call. Hey, uh, great stuff, man. Thank you very much, John. I appreciate you uh, uh, calling in on, on all these different things. Uh, but, by the way, that's the will to resist in North Korea, even after military strike, we have to keep in mind that they're, they're, uh, that part of brainwashing is that people actually start to believe stuff. And North Korean propaganda, we see it as cartoonish. We see it as foolish and silly and disconnected from reality. And while all that is true from our perspective, if you grew up inside of North Korea, there are some people who support the regime. There are some people who believe that they face annihilation. And I don't mean like a few. There is internal support for the Kim regime. Uh, who do we? We have no way of knowing, by the way, how extensive that is. Don't be fooled into thinking that the media really has insight into this because they don't. All right. Remember, I mean, I hate to bring it up. Remember, Iraq will be greeted as liberators. By the way, we were greeted as liberators in Iraq by a majority of the population. They were happy that Saddam was gone, but it only takes. 10, 15, 20 percent of a population of a country like Iraq to be against you and 20, 30, 40,000 people to take up arms against you to create a nightmare quagmire scenario. Right. That's so. So remember that we're talking and I'm not now it sounds like I'm talking about an occupation of North Korea. But if we think that we can just hit them and that'll be the end of it, there's plenty of reason to believe that. We will have kicked the hornet's nest, and then we'll get drawn even deeper into it because we're going to have to eliminate all the hornets. That's a scary situation. Um, and it's similarities to ideologically, historically, to Imperial Japan. It's, com- it's actual kamikaze rhetoric, as I was telling you yesterday. They borrow slogans from Imperial Japan and the kamikazes. They, they use the same rhetoric and terminology with regard to North Korea and its military operations. Scary stuff. Uh, something to keep in mind. Uh, do we have? We've got John up in Alaska. K E N I. What's up, John? Hey, first of all, I love you. You really are a smart guy. Most people don't realize that the North Korean or Wa, the Wa or what inhabited inhabited Japan. They they uh, subjugated the Ainu. The similar similarities are because they kept the same tradition. South Korea is a different group. And that's why you have to look at these separate. The, and we should have taken care of this a long time ago. Clinton caused all these problems. Um, everything, I'll, I'll explain what a Soviet ambassador said to me. He said, do you realize that every war you've ever fought was caused by a Democrat? I go, what? Civil war. Every, <laughs> Lee was a Democrat. Uh, Jefferson Davis was a Democrat. World War I, Wilson, the Democrat. World War II, Teddy Roosevelt, the Democrat. Uh, FDR, you mean, yeah. 
Yeah, I mean FDR. I'm sorry. Um, you, and um, uh, JFK got us deep into Vietnam, and Lyndon Johnson right. escalated it. You you got it. Now I'm the guy. As you, you were just mentioning about uh, Saddam Hussein, when H.W. Bush was uh, going, this is Desert Storm. Where he's going to go in there. Uh, Jack Coghill, Lieutenant Governor of Alaska, and I uh, discussed with Bush that what they were doing was wrong, and we explained to him why. If you're going to take Iraq, you're going to have to own it. The Shiites and the Sunnis are at war with each other. It has been a modified civil war for many years. The only thing keeping it from full-scale civil war was Saddam Hussein. Everybody hated him. And uh, I explained to him what was going to happen. We were also going in the wrong time. I said, start putting our men in survival suits somewhere down in South Carolina and leave them out in the sun in 96-degree weather and see how long they last. It was from the efforts I did, created the gel packs and the suits, and I said, you have to have cooling vans. When you're fighting a desert climate in a full biological chemical warfare suit, you better have cooling. No ifs, ands, or buts. But we're running into a situation here where the only, only country that can deal with uh, North Korea is China. They have great respect because the Chinese came down and helped them out when we were kicking. Yeah, the Chinese crossed the Yalu River and turned the course of the, of the Korean War. I mean, MacArthur, I by the way, that. wanted to finish off the North Korean state. And as we know, MacArthur also thought about going after right. mainland China, to make the point. My uncle died there after the Chozon Reservoir. A friend of mine was left as a rear guard, they were left with a bunch of M3 half-tracks with quad 50 caliber on it. They all became deaf afterwards. They took every bit of 50 caliber ammunition. And those Chinese came down. He said none of them had a mortar. They didn't have an artillery piece because they just ran. Because they had moved so fast, they had moved past everything. So it was just men with guns. It was just human waves, right? I mean, the, the number of Chinese that came into the battle was, was vast. It was, he said... He aimed his gun so after he, the 50 calibers blew him in half, he would try not to hit a half that was already broken up, try and go for a full man. And they were pulling that thing down. He said they, they, bent, they had a bunch of spare barrels. He said they cherry-redded them till they bent down, pulled them out as best they could, put another one in. And then when they ran out of ammunition, they were already pour, pointing in the direction of going away. And that's when MacArthur said, retreat? Hell, we're just advancing in another direction. But what we're going to have to do is be smart. We're going to, have to be smart with, uh, and the only way we can be smart with that is it has to benefit China. It's got to give them something. And there's ways of doing this. I actually have a way worked out, but it's going to have to be with China, and it's going to have to be someone on their terms. Let's say China, let's, let's again, we're doing a lot of wargaming today on the show. Let's say China sits down with Trump and says, you know what, we will, we'll, whatever it is that you want us to do, we're willing to do. What, what, does, what does that mean? I mean, I'm not even sure we know what that would happen. As I said, and I, I obviously wouldn't tell it here, I have an entire scenario worked out that would solve the problem. Whether it's going to get to the right people or not um, uh, is a whole See, other. because, because they're, they're, at some point, Chinese pressure runs up against regime survival in North Korea, and no matter what you do to the economy, no matter what you do 
to cut off North Korea if you're the Chinese from the outside world. And remember, they could bring the North Korean economy to, a, to such as it is to a screeching halt, right? And I think 80 or 90 percent of the external trade of North Korea is with China. North Korean guest workers around the world, we, you know, we can get countries to kick them out. So now they can't get those foreign currency reserves. I mean, there's a lot of or foreign currency payments. There's a lot of problems uh, or a lot of ways that we can uh, address this problem. But ultimately, the North Koreans know, Kim Jong-un knows, that as long as he has nukes, there will not right. be a full-scale invasion to topple his regime. And if you're right. Kim Jong-un, that is the single most important thing in the world. And so there's nothing that can be offered. There is no inducement that can get him to give that up. That's, that is the problem. Well, there is the inducement. Like any, any person, there is a certain amount of, I don't want to die. And he's got an awful good life. And uh, it, what was offered to Saddam Hussein? Now, this, uh, the, uh, there's a name for this, but I'm not going to use it because it's still, still a valid name. Um, George H.W. Bush stated, uh, and they worked out a, a big deal, after they destroyed the Republican Guard, and you saw the pictures of all those tanks, all those vehicles, and all those dead men in the desert. Just one straight line on that one road going back to... Uh, yeah, they called it the Highway of Death, if I remember. Yeah, Highway of Death. And um, the idea was this. We won't take out Saddam, and then that's why we wound up with the inspectors afterwards. But the problem is, they threw it to the U.N., this is the same deal that's, that Clinton said, okay, we'll give you $4 billion, you won't do this, and then the, Clinton, then the U.N. inspectors. How can we trust Rwanda to know, even know if they have a nuclear weapon or not? I mean, the people they sent out, they had a few Swedes. I mean, people, people forget that the U.N. Was the, was the unified command structure that we had for the Korean War. I mean, the U.N. was... Right. At, there, there was a time when the U.N., man, all the different countries' armies come together and, and actually fight for, uh, you know, fight for global security. But i, I got to leave it there, my friend, because we're going to run to a break. I appreciate the call from Alaska very much. Uh, team, I, the show is flying by on this stuff. Um, a lot more to discuss. I didn't even get into the Susan Rice. So Susan Rice is saying that, you know, Trump is the problem, and here's what we do to fix North Korea. Or Trump's rhetoric is a problem. Here's how we fix North Korea. Susan Rice, let's let's address this, my friends. What would be my response to that? We'll hit that and then uh, much more. Well, you'll see. You'll see. People are asking Trump what's going to be tougher than fire and fury. Hey, he's just, he's ratcheting up the rhetoric because he's got the public's attention on this issue now. By the way, isn't he supposed to be on vacation? He's in like New Jersey somewhere and. He's he's still very well. Look, he's, you're always the president, right? Even when you're on vacation, so he's he's got to take care of this issue now. You've got, as we discussed yesterday, North Korea threatening to fire missiles at Guam, which did result in a spike in Google searches for where is Guam, which you know that's that's a thing that happened. Uh, but the way that CNN is talking about this, and this is, I'm using this as an indicator of how the Democrats, the left, the media in general are responding right now when the problem is Kim Jong-un. The problem is North Korea, advanced missile programs, nuclear weapons, crazy regime, threat to neighbors, threat to allies, threat to us. That's the problem. But they want to make Trump the problem. I mean, here's Jake Tapper, who has the distinction of being the least blatantly left-wing anchor, I guess, in primetime at CNN, for whatever that, you know, makes you think. 
Uh, but here's what he had to say about it. President Trump speaking more loosely and in the view of critics, recklessly about the most devastating weapon known to man, more so than any leader of any Western nation. You have Susan Rice in her editorial today in The New York Times saying that if North Korea steps out of line, I'm paraphrasing here, but she used the word annihilation. They face annihilation. Why? We're parsing this terminology in such a way that, yeah, we're all very clear on this. If North Korea attacked us, we would use our uh, incredible, in the true sense of the term, it's hard to fathom, nuclear arsenal to end the North Korean state, which would be terrible, by the way. There'd be tens of millions of people killed. But that is, or at least millions of people, I mean, you know, I don't know what the full extent of the casualties would be, but it would be horrific. But we're all aware of that. That's what's going on. But, you know, they, they put these people, they, they bring out clowns and put them on TV to talk about this. People who have no business discussing this whatsoever. It's uncoordinated. It's irresponsible. But is and it possible that they're just good cop, bad copping North Korea, that Tillerson says, everybody can calm down, we're going to figure this out diplomatically, and the president says, fire and fury will rain down on you? That they want to be unpredictable? Uh, the only thing that's predictable about them is that they're inconsistent. But, the, I mean, I, I have a hard time thinking that this was a, a, a strategic, well-thought-out, uh, you know, thought... That's Anna Navarro from CNN. What she knows about North Korea would be, that would be a fun game to play. I would like to have on-the-spot trivia with Anna Navarro. When, when, was, when, was the, uh, when was the Korean War, you know? What's the capital of North? What's the capital of South Korea? I mean, it would be an interesting game to play. These are people that they put on TV to talk about this and to, to talk about how dumb the Trump administration is, by the way, and how strategically incompetent and they don't know anything and they're reckless and... He's back with you now, because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. The people of this country should be very comfortable. And I will tell you this, if North Korea does anything in terms of even thinking about attack of anybody that we love or we represent or our allies or us, they can be very, very nervous. I'll tell you what, and they should be very nervous. Commander-in-Chief, President Trump is not messing around. He is not mincing words on this issue of North Korea. And we've got somebody who can help uh, illuminate where this is all heading and what the policy is going to look like in the days and weeks ahead. Dr. Sebastian Gorka joins us now. He is Deputy Assistant to President Donald Trump. Dr. Gorka, I know you're super busy. Appreciate you making the time. My pleasure for you, Buck. My pleasure. So tell me about, for, for those listening, I want your uh, your take, Dr. Gorka, on why now? Why is it all of a sudden it seems like we have this North Korea crisis when we know it's been building for quite a while? Well, it's not why now the crisis. It's the fact that we've had decades of appeasement. So we've had uh, first under Bill Clinton and then at the, uh, the Zenith, was under the last administration where we constantly gave concessions again and again and again to a dictatorial regime that is Stalinist in nature and is evil. And uh, this is a new administration, and we have followed the progress in both 
development of nuclear weapons and also ballistic missile testing, which are both illegal according to the norms and strictures and the treaties that uh, are incumbent upon North Korea. And this president has rightly decided enough is enough and the West will no longer be uh, involved in black mail uh, of a nuclear nature. Uh, the, the State Department through the good offices of Rex Tillerson did something amazing. They created a 15 to 0 vote of the UN Security Council, including, including nations like China and Russia, who agreed that the escalation by this hermit regime must stop because they are a grave threat. And this president takes the threat very seriously and will respond in whatever measures, with whatever measures are deemed necessary to protect our nation. So it's a long story. There's a long backstory. But now we have decisiveness. Dr. Gorka, there's a lot of talk, including in a Wall Street Journal editorial that I think just uh, hit the hit the uh, presses today or hit the web today about how China plays such a huge role here. We know geographically, historically and otherwise China and economically China, North Korea are very closely tied together. What are some of the ways, uh, some of the, the the open ways, the ways that we could discuss here on the show that China could show that it is really fine? willing to do everything in its power uh, to bring North Korea to heel? Well, primarily, the largest leverage they have is the the proximity to North Korea and their economic influence. So uh, according to certain estimates, up to 90 percent of all imports into North Korea come from China. This is a this is a regime that cannot feed its own people. The North Korean population is on average three inches shorter than the South Korean population. Just think about that. Two Koreas, one is being starved, the other is a functioning nation. Uh, The Chinese can use diplomatic pressure, pressure behind closed doors politically, but their economic leverage is massive, especially if you think about the leverage they have with regards to energy uh, exports into North Korea. China's deciding to vote with us on the UN Security Council is a signal that they too have had enough. Now we would like to see them exercise that leverage, but most importantly, we would like to see North Korea de-escalate. De-escalation would certainly be a, a massive improvement over what we're seeing right now, Dr. Gorka, but for a completely acceptable end state when talking about the U.S., North Korea, and, and global North Korea relations, would there have to be regime change or would denuclearization of North Korea be sufficient? So we, we don't like to give our long-term uh, game plan away. That's what the Bush administration, uh, uh, that's what the Obama administration uh, did. We don't do that because your enemy will exploit that. Uh, the fact is that right now we wish to see a de-escalation and right now we need to see a denuclearization of the peninsula. For there to be stability on the peninsula and in the region writ large, we want to see denuclearization and no further testing of nuclear weapons or illegal ballistic missiles. We're speaking to Dr. Sebastian Gorka. Uh, he is deputy assistant to President Donald Trump. Dr. Gorka, I know uh, you've got a packed schedule today. I just got one, one more question for you. Um, what do you make of so many Democrats, senior elected officials, former uh, former officials in the government who seem so focused on Trump's rhetoric when the president is trying to confront a man-man with nuclear missiles? 
It's very saddening. Uh, look, whether it was uh, Truman or Roosevelt during World War II, whether it was uh, the uh, Eisenhower during the Suez Crisis, whether it was JFK during Cuba, there's a point at which uh, political party differences must be put aside temporarily uh, in the interest of the nation. This is a democracy, but when national security threats are grave, then uh, you can't allow your personal political preferences or your agenda to trump national security. We're all Americans, and the president, the president wants to protect everybody in this nation, whether you voted for him or not, or whether you voted at all. And the idea that we have politicians, and especially uh, journalists and members of the media, think that their political views are more important than national security, uh, that, that, that is the road to perdition, and I find it very, very sad. Dr. Sebastian Gorka, everybody. He's deputy assistant to President Donald Trump. Dr. Gorka, great to have you. Come back soon. I'd be delighted. God bless you and the listeners. You too, sir. Uh, Team, we'll hit a quick break. We'll be back with much more, including a discussion about the fallout from Google. And yes, that's right. Why would Vogue magazine think that Chelsea Manning should be in a bathing suit on its cover? It's a question I never thought we'd be asking, but I'm asking it now because it's a thing that happened. We'll... So the progressive left uh, embraced Chelsea Manning a long time ago, and uh, they have created this fiction, really, that Chelsea Manning is a whistleblower. I'm not sure what any of the whistleblowing was, blowing the whistle how, that War is a is a dangerous and, and hard business. That diplomacy requires confidentiality and discussions behind closed doors to move U.S. interests and universal human interests, when possible, forward. That I'm, I'm still not clear on what the whistleblowing was, because you know, I don't believe it was whistleblowing. I think it was just an act of personal hubris. I have access to all this interesting stuff. I'm just going to share all this stuff, despite what the consequences may be for the United States, and despite my oath not to do exactly that. But Bradley, now Chelsea Manning, has become a transgender individual. Uh, and I have to say, this is becoming a increasingly difficult situation when it comes to the pronoun usage because now we're now we're being told yeah i have to say she it's rude it's mean it's unkind not to say she chelsea manning is a man chelsea manning is a man i I don't know why this is a contra well i do know why it's a controversial point but this should not be a controversial point chelsea manning is male if uh, since bradley decided to change his name i mean look my first name is james my middle name is buckman people call me buck you can be called whatever you want you know, um, but apparently I said a while ago that I, people should call me like the mighty buck overlord or something. It turns out that's actually a band. I didn't know that, by the way, that there's, there was a band. I forget what I was, my fake cool name was, but there was a band. Oh, the almighty buck. That's right. There is a band called the almighty buck. I've, I haven't heard their stuff. But I should probably download it. So I guess you can't call me that because that name is taken, but you can change your name and that's fine. And it would be impolite to refuse to call somebody their name. In fact, totally random side note when i was maybe in the sixth or seventh grade i had a teacher who refused to call me buck and my parents were like no that's his name he goes no his name is buckman i'm not going to call him buck i'll only call him buckman and we're like okay you're a grammar school teacher that should just call the student what his name is like anyway it was weird but that that is rude right you should call somebody what they what they say their name is okay so chelsea manning fine but he or she that's that seems to me to be an issue of fact 
He is for men. She is for women. Chelsea Manning is a man. But now I could be not just publicly shamed, but maybe even legally forced. It might even be actionable in a corporate environment. And as we see now from Google, and I'll get back to that in a few minutes, corporate environments are vicious and vindictive when it comes to enforcing progressive orthodoxy now. This affects you, my friends. It affects me. Wherever you work, whatever business you're in, or if you don't work, if you're a homemaker or you're retired or you're just hanging out or whatever it may be, you will come across this and they will force you to speak about this a certain way now. They will make you use the, quote, preferred pronoun. Individuals will come to you and say that I like to be called they. And you might respond, well, that's improper English and it's also bizarre. And they will say, I don't care. You better or else. That's now the environment in which we find ourselves. Despite the fact that a majority of the American people would certainly never sign on for that, a very loud and very uh, totalitarian-minded minority within the progressive left is dictating this to the rest of us. They are petty little dictators. And when it comes to the transgender rights issue, this is a place where they can force everyone else they think to bend the knee. Whether it's by threats or it's by appealing to our desire to be kind and to be friendly, you know, that's honestly my that's the weakness with me. I, I don't want to offend people for no reason. I don't want to make people feel badly for no reason. I'm not trying to make anyone feel less about uh, himself or herself. But I also don't like to be a party to uh, delusion and unreality. So that leaves me. Or that leads me rather to a discussion now about how Chelsea Manning, who has been embraced by the left and who Obama commuted, commuted his sentence, by the way. Uh, and by the way, I will say his, but keep in mind that this is now this may be taken out of my hands, meaning that we may we are quickly, rapidly approaching an America where if you call someone a he and that he says he's a she, you could get fired. You could be brought up on discrimination charges i mean uh, that's a once the once the government decides that uh decides that feelings trump reality we're in a very dangerous place because where does that stop and start what are the what are the outer boundaries of that phenomenon but chelsea manning is now on the or has been photographed for the cover of vogue so you now have someone who is Clearly a male, physically, uh, who I think puts on nail polish and, you know, uh, eyeshadow and stuff. But it's clearly male who is wearing a female bathing suit. So it covers it's a one piece. I mean, I've seen the photo. It's something that y you can all go see yourself. I mean, I don't know if we don't have it up on BuckSexon.com. We probably will shortly. But is wearing a one piece female bathing suit to cover uh, his chest, which is, of course, just a male chest, which we are not as a society. Uh of the mind needs to be covered right we, it, because it's not and i understand people say oh look at that in some in some societies you know females don't have to cover up either okay i get it but we think of the female chest area as deserving of some modesty although in new york city you can actually walk around topless by the way on the street and i've seen it and i will not pass judgment on whether it was the kind of thing i wanted to see or not because yeah it's a conversation for another day uh, but you can walk around topless in New York City. It's legal. So, and I've seen women do it. Um, 
But Chelsea Manning is a male and is on the cover of Vogue. Now, I'm not one. I have. I can tell. I've never read Vogue. That probably doesn't surprise you at all. I'm somebody who likes to read things. I've never read Vogue, but I do appreciate. And my my girlfriend works actually in fashion, and I do appreciate uh, that there are the arts and the creative sectors and. There is an aesthetic and there is an appeal to what is uh, what is beautiful and what is aspirational. And, you know, I'm not someone who can speak with with eloquence or knowledge about art beyond what you would learn in a basic art history class. And, you know, I can I, I can fake it a little bit with some of the, the great uh, Renaissance masters and talk about some of that. And, you know, I can pick out a David anyway. But I'm not somebody who can sit there and say, well, this painting, this three stripes of blue on a black canvas represents the struggle of man to reach his full potential in a mechanized world. Whatever. Right. I mean, that's not that's not my jam. I actually am very cynical slash dismissive of a lot of modern art. And I've gotten into more than my fair share of discussions about how that the emperor has no clothes and like, let's not let's stop pretending. But. With Vogue, you know, usually, I know that they've embraced celebrity, and so you have a lot of celebrities on this. And I know that with Caitlyn Jenner on the cover of ESPN magazine and and getting an ESPY award and all this, that this is this is not the first time we've seen the elevation of transgender into a hero status. But with Chelsea Manning, you're talking about somebody who betrayed his country and did something that was intentionally, knowingly, reckless, and destructive— and did all of this and now claims transgender status and so claims victim status and in fact now hero status on top of that is being elevated in our society. The cover of Vogue, which in the fashion and arts world still has some level of, I know some of you are like, what? I know, like I know, but here's what I think is so interesting about where this will all go. If you criticize this, There are people now who will say that that is bigoted. If you say that Chelsea Manning is neither an attractive male nor attractive female, you'll be told that you are a bigot and that you are transphobic. If you say that this is bizarre and people will say that it's a a stunt for attention. And to some degree, that's certainly true. But, you know, this is playing into a bigger movement. Yeah, I had I couldn't really believe it until I read it. You know, there are people now you will read this. There are trans activists who try to make the case that a man who is heterosexual, which I wonder if that's even, you know, it's like cisgender sexual now, right? Heterosexual, they're probably going to say is no longer an acceptable term because it harkens back to the old days of like men and women and marriage and babies. And no, 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 none of that anymore. So whatever the new terminology will be, I'll let you know when I get updated on it. Uh, But a heterosexual man, trans activists now will openly say, and remember, this is while Bradley Manning is being, or Chelsea Manning, I just dead named by accident, right? That's what they call it when you use the old name for a trans person, dead naming. Bradley (laughs) Manning, I did it again by accident, actually. Chelsea Manning on the cover of Vogue is not just an attention stunt. Some of you are going to say, Buck, come on. I'm being serious. There are activists out there and there are major media outlets that push the idea that straight men should be attracted to trans women because understand that their theory here is that this is now a woman, that Bradley Manning is now Chelsea Manning is now a woman, right? That gender identity trumps all, that she is now, for all intents and purposes, female. 
And so if you are heterosexual, I, I kid you not, there are activists, writers and uh, media people and people in the creative side of the uh, you know, creative arts who will say that a straight male should be attracted to a transgender, quote, female. And here's the here's where this is going to get really interesting. And if you are not, if you are not, you are you are bigoted. This has to be, you have to work through this problem because you're just closed minded. Because if you're a man who's attracted to women, you should be attracted to trans women. Now, I know a lot of you are like, you know, who are heterosexual or listening and who are men are like, no, no way. Uh, and I'm with you on that. <laughs> but this is now the this is where the narrative goes, right? It, it never the progressives have never gotten enough. It never stops. It's never so crazy. that They're like, maybe we should like check ourselves in this a little bit. No, no, no. It's always the next phase. It's always pushed it a little further. It's always erode the boundaries and distort reality just a little bit more. And so now if you're a straight man who is not attracted to a man who dresses up like a woman and calls himself a woman and takes hormone therapy, but is still anatomically a male, you've got a problem. You're closed minded. You're bigoted. There's something you need to. I mean, there was a there was a poll. I, I, I was in the uh, it was in the Daily the Daily Beast a while back uh, about how. I think it was only one in five, one in five guys uh, would, one in five straight men would date a transgender person. I think I'm, I'm yeah, uh, that's right. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. So I know I ran into the next break there without uh, finishing what I was saying. So I was just trying to make sure I got the numbers right. But uh, this is so it was a Daily Beast piece that had the stats on Americans and willingness to engage in sexual activity with a transgender person. Uh, And here's how it was summarized on the Daily Wire. Daily Beast laments that just one in five Americans want to have sex with a transgender person. Younger Americans were more open to having sex with a transgender woman, including 13 percent of 35 to 54 year olds and 19 percent of the 18 to 34 year old age bracket. Now, what they mean by this is, or what they're getting into here is, uh, you know, that, well, it says the survey did not specify whether the numbers change of the transgender woman was pre or post op. Uh but yeah, this is now they're trying to change this. This is this is a cause now. If you're a guy who's attracted to women, you should be attracted to guys who think they are women. That's what they're saying. And if you're not, there's something wrong with you. This is this is now the I know five years ago it was we'll never say that men should be able to you know use the girls' room right or the ladies' room. And now here we are. If you if you aren't on board for that, you're a bigot. Trust me, the next it's already happened. You've already started to see the argument surfacing, but people are like, what? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, this is real. This is this is happening now. And putting Chelsea Manning on the cover of Vogue, you see, uh, by putting um, uh, Chris uh, or Caitlyn Jenner on the cover of VSPN, it's now transgender people are heroes. By putting Chelsea Manning on the cover of Vogue, it's now transgender people are sexy. And you sh- and by the- that was also part of the Caitlyn Jenner thing, by the way, it was look at how beautiful this guy who's appear who's trying to present as a woman looks and a lot. And-, and every straight guy I know was like, no, sorry, just not just doesn't 
The, the illusion does not work. And with Chelsea Manning, there will be a similar phenomenon, but they're going to keep they're going to keep coming back to this. They'll keep keep pushing this on us all. They'll, they'll keep pushing even a failed concept on us like uh, Lena Dunham is witty and insightful and uh, Amy Schumer is funny. Right. Even when these things have been proven untrue time and time again, they'll, they'll shovel this on top of us. And it's now going to be that transgender guys are attractive for straight males. I mean, I can't speak for anybody other than myself, but never going to happen. Never going to bend. On, never going to bend on this issue. Not going to bend the knee. Not going to change the terminology. Not going to sign on for it. But it's it's happening, and it just shows. Also, as as an aside, what a bunch of sheep the left are. I mean, that I, I promise you, if you walked around right now, and I like to I like to beat up on Brooklyn a little bit because one, I'm from Manhattan, and two, Brooklyn and. and you know, in Manhattan, there's like a little bit more of an old school, at least at least we're greedy enough to want to keep our money here. That's kind of the Manhattan mentality. So they're not totally progressive left. Whereas in Brooklyn, you've just got some straight up communes, even though there's a lot of money in Brooklyn, too. Uh, you've got people that are, are anarchists and communists and everything running around. Uh, but if you went around to a fancy coffee shop right now in Brooklyn and you said, hey, and you ask guys in front of their female counterparts, by the way, um, don't, don't you think, don't you think Chelsea Manning is, don't you think Chelsea Manning is beautiful? They would, a lot of them, are, I prom, actually I should run, this is a great experiment. I should actually do this. A lot of them. Yeah. I should show up and say, Hey, we just want to talk to you about, you know, transgender rights. And how, what do you think about this Chelsea Manning on Vogue cover? You would have straight. Um, and now, now, you know, if somebody is you know, attracted to someone of the same sex and you think Chelsea Manning, God bless, you know, that's whatever. I mean, that's your thing. I don't care. I'm talking about straight males. Uh, and straight males asked about this would feel pressure to say that Chelsea Manning is attractive, even if they are not attracted to people of the same sex, because that's how powerful the messaging and the and the whole strategy is going to be now. I, I actually, I, mean, I just felt like maybe I really should try this out. It would be a fascinating experiment. Right, you, but you'd have to pick real progressive strongholds. I have to go to like the new school and ask graduate students there. Hey, how do you feel about um, how do you feel about Chelsea Manning? And I think you'd have guys like, yeah, she's, you know, she. Of course, they would say she. She's beautiful. And look, I, you know, I, I, I'm not, I'm not really somebody who's sitting here trying to argue the aesthetics of beauty one way or the other. But I mean, if you're a guy, you're attracted, and you're attracted to women, you're attracted to women. And this is a very basic biological fact. I mean, now you start getting down to like people, like people, you know, we, we breathe, we eat, we sleep, we reproduce. We are attracted to one one gender or the other. Uh, and yeah, this is what's going to happen now. OK, so I just wanted to finish up that. thought. So this is keep in mind that this is now a place where you will see more noise about this and you will see people who are social. Mark my words, you will see social shaming of men who refuse to uh, state their attraction to transgender men who present as women, you will see that happening now. That that is a th- that will come up more and more. Just give it just give it some time. All right, now I want to get into um, I want to get into the uh, continued fallout from the uh, the Google memo. And, and before I do that, let me just note that in the next hour we've got a little more. Uh, war gaming coming on North Korea, but we've got a couple of guests joining, so I wanted to have them weigh in on, on some specifics there, including specific missiles we're talking about and also looking at different scenario analysis. I know it's a lot of North Korea today, but I'm planning to not do very much North Korea tomorrow, at least as of now. 
Um, and also, I want to talk to you about uh, the alcohol ep- alcoholism epidemic in this country. That's in the next hour, too. So just uh, note that that's where we'll go. Uh, I think this actually, you know what, this will be a decent time to stop because I've got a lot to say about this, about Google and what's happened at Google, the aftermath at Google. Uh, the, the progressive orthodoxy has been exposed, and it's kind of like when... You know, the, the curtains open and the vampires are caught out in the open. It's like, and then, you know, they all like get burned and turned to dust. There's a little bit of that going on now. It's kind of like, wow, you guys are crazy. Like you, you are so out of, uh, out of touch with reality and also just nasty. So very nasty to those who disagree with you. And so babyish and childish and, oh, my hurt feelings. I'm so sad. I'm just, like, shaking, RN. Eh, what am I going to do? Literally shaking. There's so much of that. So much pathetic victimology and whining. And and we, we all now live in this, in this uh, America where if you can claim that someone else oppresses you, you can also make demands about what everyone owes you. Well, that's a really that's the that's the greatest scam running, isn't it? Oh, I, this makes me feel sad, or this makes me feel unsafe, or I don't like those ideas. So I need, you know, I, I want a better job, or I want more money, or I want. This is now this is like a defining characteristic, a defining ideological point on the on the left within the Democratic Party. I mean, this is this is where it is now, and Google is just one of the biggest examples of it. And Google is a vastly wealthy and powerful company and on a person to person level in terms of its uh you know human resources and intra office politics dynamics it's just childish it's like a bunch of babies run the place i mean sure they're all brilliant computer engineers and they're changing the world and all that but you know if you walk next to them and you and you try to talk to them by the water cooler you know you better not hurt their feelings oh so sad uh, so let's talk a bit about that. And also, I think I'll probably get to, sorry, guys, I, I end up doing, I come into the show with like five hours of what I want to talk to you about, and I end up having to cut so much and, and leave it. And usually I get to it the next day if I can. Um, maybe this uh, memo about science that was in Slate. I mentioned it yesterday. I started to get into it, but oh, oh boy, it's good stuff. It's good stuff. I promise you. Uh, so let's see if we can get into all of that and more by the way bucksexon.com posting stories we talk about here if you want to read you do a little more uh get into a little more background on them and also bucksexon.com slash store you can buy our awesome gear i've got my own t-shirts on the way i i got some today i placed the order so uh love it also when people share it on social media very much appreciate that and for those of you who don't make it to the very end of the podcast which is usually or very end of the show which is usually when i throw in this pitch uh, please do download our podcast. Uh, it's on iTunes, Buck Sexton with America Now. And if you wouldn't mind rating it, you just click the stars, hopefully five stars. And if you want to write something about Shields High, it's awesome. I love it. That would be great, too. And maybe just tell one friend. Just one friend. If every one of you listening told one friend about the show next week, it would be like, boom, amazing stuff. Small favor, but means a lot to me. Okay, so this is from the Wall Street Journal, and it's the fallout from the uh, the Google diversity memo 
uh, which is just, it's been great this week because there's been so much of the left and the hypocrisy and the inconsistency. It's just been exposed and it's, it's been, it's been a wonderful thing. Uh, but it's also, it's kind of scary. And as I was saying, for those of you who are like, Buck, why do I, I don't work at Google. Why do I care? Wherever you work, if they have their way, if the Democrats have their way, I don't, if you're a machinist, if you're a truck driver, if you're a school teacher, if you're a pediatrician, if you're working at, uh, working at Walmart or you're an entrepreneur starting your own business, whatever, you will have to live by these new mandates of political correctness or these continuous mandates, I should say, of political correctness and diversity and multiculturalism and transgender rights and pronoun usage. And this is you have no escape from this now because they will use the law as well as social uh, social shaming to get their way wherever you are in the country. I know some of you are like, Buck, I'm in like, you know, Kansas or I'm in Alabama or I'm in, you know, oh, no, they'll they'll find you. They will find a way to make an example of you. And so this is why it's important for all of us to understand what's happening right now. And where this is going. Okay. And Google is just a very visible, very important uh, exemplar of what's happening here. This is kind of the epitome of the progressive leftist mindset. All right. So you have uh, the following reported from the Wall Street Journal. Google canceled a company-wide meeting about diversity just before it was set to begin Thursday, saying right-wing websites published the names of employees who had proposed questions raising security concerns. Google chief executive Sundar Pichai said in an email to employees that the company decided to cancel the highly anticipated meeting after employees expressed concerns about their safety and worried they may be outed for asking a question at the town hall. Let me just recap, everybody. That's that's the end of the quote there. Let me just recap. Google which just fired somebody for saying that it is an echo chamber, it is full of uh, dictatorial groupthink and progressive, uh, progressive orthodoxy from which there is no escape and there is no deviation allowed. Google can't even hold a meeting to discuss this because people are afraid, according to the CEO of Google, that they will be outed for asking questions. They can't even have a free speech discussion because of concerns about being associated with free speech, everybody. You can't you can't make this stuff up. Right? A company that has problems with uh with bias is so biased that the people in the company are not allowed to show up or are worried to show up and not allowed at this point to show up and ask questions about the bias. You're not allowed to ask the questions. You're not allowed to talk about it. By the way, this is true. See, this is why all this diversity and multiculturalist stuff is so toxic, but particularly the diversity policies are so toxic because they are they have the they have force, right? They are they are policies. They're hiring people. They're promoting people based upon this, but you're not allowed to talk about it. But everyone knows about it, but you're not allowed to talk about it. Well, what kind of of corporate culture does that set up? And by the way, at a more human level, at a more person-to-person level, what does that make people feel like? You know, we, we keep on being told that, oh, this is so mean because it makes people feel, in this, in the case of this memo, by the way, the diversity we're talking about is female diversity. 
not even talking about like racial ethnic diversity uh but women at the company and i mean this is like self-parody were you know they got like the vapors and they couldn't go into work because they're so upset about this memo and then they're and then they wonder you know why people are going to say mean things on the internet and elsewhere about how you know you don't want to protest a women can't you can't handle the the rough and tumble world of high level silicon valley corporate structure by saying that someone wrote a mean memo so we can't go to work anymore okay that's that's one part of this uh but now we we have to look at what this means for uh and see i was going to talk to you about this stop equating science with truth article this might have to this might have to wait till tomorrow because it it really deserves its own its own few minutes of time it's it's amazing um, but okay, so back to the uh, the Google Town Hall, though. I know. Sorry, I'm throwing a bunch of things at you at the same time. What does it mean at a person to person level? What are the people who are brought in under these diversity programs? Where, I, I know that they're often very demonstrative, very vocal about how great they are and how that because and they've convinced themselves that this is not just fair, but this is the right thing to do. This is not just convenient, but this is the moral thing to do. That women, for example, in some of these tech companies, that a woman and a man up for the same job at Google in certain circumstances, the woman will get the job, all other things being equal because she's a woman. And that is fair. And that is not just I'm sorry, that's not just fair. That is right. And it is an obligation, in fact, a moral obligation of the company to do that. But... Heaven forbid anybody say that that's happening. Heaven forbid anybody walk up to the woman who's received that promotion and say, congratulations, I'm so glad we're elevating diversity in this company. You'll be fired. You're gone. But isn't that what just happened? How can we not? If it's such a good thing, why are we not allowed to talk about it? And this is just another version of if Google is such an open place for ideas and for free thought and for reasoned debate, why are people afraid to show up at a company town hall and ask questions and discuss anything? Because we all know what the truth is here. And the reason the whole country has latched on to this story is because, as I was saying, whether you are an employee at, you know, Bill's Lumberyard or you work for a Fortune 500 company, this has started to infiltrate and perhaps already dominates the mindset of the HR department and perhaps even the executives at your company, depending on the size of it. And so this is already, this is already happening to us. And Google is going to have to do some really interesting public relations repair, I think, because people are seeing what the truth is here, which is that it is an echo chamber. It is ideologically, it's ideologically rigid. It is ossified. It is frozen in place as a progressive stronghold. And there can be no alternative for that. There can be no discussion outside of that. By the way, we should note that this, I'm sure, also has an impact on its, uh, that just that fear for many of the centrist or conservative people who work at Google I'm sure affects their relationships with their colleagues and and that probably affects their work product too. And also, what are we to say to people at Google who know that they're not allowed to share their opinions, know that they would be ostracized for being conservatives, and 
want to ask questions about the diversity programs that are in place, are we to tell them that what they're they're sexists or they're bigots because they want to question these policies? Well, that's what Google would tell them, but what does it say that Google won't even have an open defense of it? And this is, it's fascinating. We'll talk about this more tomorrow. Like I said, we're going to war game a little bit of North Korea coming up here. And then I want to talk to you about uh, some personal experience with the alcohol epidemic. He's back with you now, because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. All right, so we have all this talk about North Korea and the way forward. We've got David French online to help us answer some of these questions. He's a senior writer for National Review. He's also an attorney and a veteran of Operation Iraqi Freedom. His latest up on NationalReview.com is, No, the Iran deal isn't a blueprint for dealing with North Korea. David, great to have you. Uh, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, I, I was uh, somewhat stunned that you had Susan Rice in a New York Times op-ed come out and say, she said a lot of things, to be fair, or whomever wrote it under her byline. I mean, you know, I know that happens with former senior officials, but a lot of things said in that piece. One of them, though, is that, you know, we can live, we can learn to live with a nuclear North Korea. Not only does that trouble me, but I think that that was a window into the mindset of all members. She was national security advisor to the Obama administration, all the top players under Obama. I think they sold the Iran deal to us as it'll mean Iran never gets nukes. But a lot of them thought and probably said behind closed doors, well, it just means they'll get them more slowly and we'll be better friends when they get them. That's what I really think. Yeah, you know, I think that I think that the real goal here now, I, you know, obviously, I don't think the Obama administration is really I, I think the Obama administration doesn't want Iran to have nuclear weapons. It just wasn't willing to do what it took to guarantee that it didn't get them and thought that it's sort of a second consolation prize. Maybe they could coax Iran into the category of respectable nations. So I really think that the core goal of the Iran deal was to bring Iran into this so-called community of nations. Again and again, you know, that that is something that the Obama administration talked about was this goal of somehow making Iran not Iran anymore. Right. No, I, I agree with you that they don't they don't want I don't think they wanted Iran to get nukes. But I also think that they. I, I know that they were very vocal about how a nuclear they will say a nuclear Iran is unacceptable, but then they construct a deal. The Obama administration constructed yeah. a deal that was. But I mean, it's probably going to happen. So we might as well make it as much as you say, a part of the community of nations as possible. Yeah. That's not to say they like it, but it's to say that they do accept that is the future. Yeah, I, you know, it feels like an accommodation. I mean, it doesn't feel like an accommodation. It's an accommodation. I mean, this. This provided Iran with enormous economic benefit. It uh, opens them up to international arms exports. Uh, it allows them to develop ballistic missile technology. I mean, as I said in my little piece about uh, comparing it to North Korea, if you had the same, if you had the same arrangement with North Korea, it would supercharge North Korea's power, uh, especially the access to international arms markets. I mean, could you imagine the North Korean regime with modern weaponry? Uh, so, yeah, this is the last thing that we want to do is pursue some sort of Iran-style deal. That would just make North Korea more dangerous. Well, yeah, that's why I think the parallel is so useful, because we were we were told that in Iran that is allowed to have 
uh, civilian nuclear infrastructure that is uh, normalized to some degree in the eyes of the international community, that has tremendously more foreign currency reserves, a whole lot more cash on hand, a whole lot more thriving economy, connections to the international banking system, that that Iran is more likely to deal with us in the future uh, in a in a reasonable way. But in reality, that'll actually make it a lot harder to drop the hammer on them. And when we look through the lens of what's going on with North Korea, if you put North Korea five or ten years down the line, which who knows, I mean, at this point, it looks like they're going to get uh, nuclear ICBMs a lot faster than that. But if you put uh, North Korea five or ten years down the line, and it was much wealthier, much more uh, advanced conventional weaponry, ties to the international banking system, inter- that's a nightmare. And because if the ideology doesn't change and they're just in a much better, stronger position, whatever we try to do to correct them in the future is going to be uh, a fool's errand. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's ridiculous, and it's especially ridiculous when you consider that we already tried that with North Korea. So, you know, the, the agreed framework of 1994 that Bill Clinton entered into with North Korea to allegedly stop its development of nuclear weapons was kind of like the beta test for the Iran deal. I mean, even right down to, you know, we've been talking about this bring Iran into the community of nations aspect. Uh, that was a core part of it. So, you know, here, we, here was Bill Clinton in 94 saying we've halted development of nuclear weapons. We're going to bring North Korea into the international community and we don't have to trust because we have a verification system. And of course, North Korea had a secret uranium enrichment project going on and the deal collapsed. And so then you fast forward to 20. 2015 with the Iran deal and your and the Obama administration starting to sell it to America, and it is the same deal. It's well, we're going to stop their weapons or slow seriously slow down their weapons uh, development. We're going to bring them into the community of nations, and we don't have to trust because we've got verification. And you're thinking, you know, look, we've seen this movie before. It's you know, fool me once, shame on me. I mean, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. And then now people are saying like. Fool us a third time? Well, that just makes us fools. I always like the George W. Bush version of fool me once, can't, can't get fooled again. <laughs> so I think he gets he gets right to it. He shortens it. We're talking to David French. He's a senior writer for National Review, also a veteran, served in Iraq. Uh, David, uh, tell me about your piece, Into the Abyss, a scenario for the next Korean War. Yeah, so this was one I really tried to create. A, I, I really tried to give people a vivid picture of what a start of the next Korean War would be like if if North Korea was able to develop a miniaturized nuclear warhead deterrent. Because there's an awful lot of people who say, well, if you just, you know, Huffington Post, I got a news alert from Huffington Post, note to self, unsubscribe to news <laughs> from Huffington Post. But he said, well, how do you not start a war in North Korea? Well, just don't bomb North Korea. Well, you forget that the military doctrine of North Korea is, is forcible reunification of the Korean Peninsula. And so what I did is I I mapped out a scenario where North Korea lashes out against the South for whatever reason. Maybe they have internal instability, internal problems, misperceive a threat from the U.S. They take Seoul. They've been diminished militarily. And then before America starts its counterattack, which would inevitably smash North Korean forces and drive them back past Pyongyang, it says, if you counterattack and retake Seoul, we're going to blow up San Francisco. Well, then what would America do? What position would we be in? (laughs) And so what I was arguing is that these nuclear weapons in North Korean hands are more destabilizing than you realize because of North Korean military doctrine and because of how nuclear armed powers can use the fact that they have those nuclear weapons 
as a compensating factor when dealing with a more advanced and and potent American conventional military. I quote from this uh, former Indian Army chief of staff, and he said, one of the lessons of the Gulf War is don't fight the U.S. unless you have nuclear weapons. I mean, if Saddam had nuclear weapons, he'd still have Kuwait and he'd still be in power. And so these are the kinds of factors we have to think about. There is no good option here. And that is deeply, deeply unfortunate. I think you make a really critical point, and you know, and, and I know if we were sitting uh, back in, in an old war room, David, talking about limited incursion, that would be a way to to explain to folks how this can. I think there's there's the sense of well, North Korea would never go into South Korea because you know our our response would be so overwhelming and we would destroy North Korea. Well, when you actually, as you've done, start to war game out some of the different scenarios here. Uh, if, if North Korea is able to take the South fast enough, and let's say they are able to foment some kind of insurrection, they create some Russian-style incident, right, that starts out not necessarily with just tanks rolling in, but they say, you know, we've got, there's a problem here, we had to land troops because we had a, you know, a ship run aground, whatever it may be. They create some confusion, some fog of war, and they change the reality of the ground fast enough in South Korea, which they have a massive, people forget, North Korean military is huge. I think they've got like a million men... I think it's like a million man standing army. I mean, they have an enormous military. And if they took the if they took at least part of South Korea, it doesn't have to be all of it, took part of South Korea fast enough and then said to us, OK, look, th- this is you know what? It's all going to be fine. Just 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 back off or else we are going to nuke Honolulu. That's a that's an interesting that's a very difficult situation for any commander in chief. I think I know we'd all like to think that we just you know s- send in the uh, 82nd Airborne and a Marine carrier group or a, a naval uh, carrier group and we deal with everything, but it's not that simple. Well, you know who would not like to think we do that? The citizens of Honolulu. I mean, so you know it's it. But you're right. I mean, so essentially what happens is, and in North in South Korea is particularly vulnerable to this because. From a defense perspective, in some ways, South Korea is a nightmare because the capital is just a few miles south of the DMZ. You have the 25 million people of the Seoul capital area in an, in an area that's less than all told about 70 miles from the border. So you have the economic heart, the political heart of South Korea is right there. And if the North would t- could take it, and even if it stopped with taking Seoul and tried to implement a new ceasefire, it would cripple the South Korean nation. So all of these factors, you know, people who don't know anything about South Korea are weighing in and about the Korean situation are weighing in all over cable news and Twitter and everything. But they don't realize how, un- how that situation has been balancing on the knife's edge for a very long time. And and, and the only reason it hasn't broken out into much, much wider hostilities, I think, is that the North hasn't seen a way clear to make gains and to guarantee those gains. Well, when you have nuclear weapons, it creates a whole different environment. In fact, this is sort of like part of uh, war gaming with NATO and Russia. The question is, if Russia, for example, decided to swoop in in a 72-hour period, take Estonia, and then say... Estonia is now part of the Russian Federation, and any attempt to retake Estonia would be taken as an attack on the Russian Federation and would be met with our full might. Would we be willing to risk that kind of escalation? This is classic military doctrine, and people have to understand the risks. I actually am reminded of, I don't know if you ever read it, it's one of my favorite Tom Clancy 
novels, uh, you know, A Debt of Honor. And it's actually the book yeah. where pre, do you remember that one? It's a, it's a phenomenal, yeah, phenomenal book. It's pre 9-11, everyone. And well, I don't want to give away the ending, but let's just say that post 9-11, the ending of that book is, uh, wow. Um, but uh, the, so you should go, I mean, it's a book that's still well worth reading, but a big part of it is that Japan decides, and obviously it's fiction, but Japan decides to retake lost possessions in the Pacific and takes them in such rapid succession and with some with some fog of war aspects to it that it then turns around and says, well, America, do you really do you really want to go to war over Okinawa, Guam, etc.? Do, do you really want to go to war with us over this? And of course, they had nuclear weapons in the book. And the answer was no, <laughs> we did not want to go to war right. with them over it. Right, exactly. And and that's something this goes all the way back to the dawn of the nuclear age. And it goes back to the a dilemma American planners had for a long time. For a, for a while, American planners said, hey, wait, we've got nuclear weapons. No one will dare attack us. And then as they thought about it longer, they thought, wait a minute. <laughs> In the real world, would we be willing to risk serious damage to our civilization because, say, to save Paris or to save West Germany? And enough, there was enough ambiguity about that that said, wait a minute, the safer course here, here is to create conventional forces that are strong enough to not to make us have to resort to the nuclear, to, to not make the nuclear option option one. David, I could keep and, talking to you and wargaming about this all day, but I, I just got to ask you one more question before we run into a break here, and that is... It seems to me that there's there's a tremendous amount of complexity here, a lot of moving pieces, I know. There are no good options. We've all established that. All these options are a little bit scary. But I think the fundamental problem, the crux of the problem here, is that no matter what we do short of force, I cannot foresee a realistic future in which the decision makers in North Korea give up their quest for nuclear weapons that can hit the United States based on sanctions, international diplomacy, or anything else. I just can't see it. I can't see it either because they view it as core to their own deterrent capability. They view it as a, as a guarantor of their regime and as the last hope, as a guarantor of the last hope to retake the South. I mean, so all of those are in their mind. And why would they give that up? Why would they? Um, they're not going to give it up for some cash, uh, for a cash infusion. They're not going to give it up. Uh, for just anything. And and so we're, we face a situation, as I said in my piece, every move, including inaction, including not taking action, is a roll of the dice. David French is a senior writer for National Review. Check out his piece, Into the Abyss, a scenario for the next Korean War. He's wargaming up there on National Review. David, always great to have you. Thanks for making the time. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Welcome back, everybody. I know we're talking a lot about North Korea today. We're wargaming. We're discussing policy options and, of course, the politics behind the various decisions that could be made here. But what about on the technical and military capability side? We've got somebody who can shed some light on that. Rebecca Heinrichs is with us. She's a fellow at the Hudson Institute. She specializes in nuclear deterrence, missile defense and counter proliferation. Rebecca, great to have you. Great to be here. What are the concerning weapons that are in play right now when we're talking about North Korea? Why is it like, why are we seeing much more news coverage right now of the missile program and the threats from it? What are the advances they've made? Well, what we've seen, the, the two missile tests that happened in July demonstrated that the North Koreans um, have successfully proven through, um, through these test launches that they do have an intercontinental ballistic missile capability. That's an ICBM. That means they have the ability to uh, reach the United States 
with a ballistic missile. We have been watching them test missiles. Even whenever their missiles blow up on the launch pad, they are learning something from those failures. Um, They're learning something from the mistakes or what happens in those tests, and then they're adapting. They're increasing their knowledge, and then they are um, applying that knowledge to their missile program, and so now they've demonstrated they have that capability. Um, There's also news that um, there was an Intel uh, report that came out, and I think it was the Washington Post that... um, that reported on it that the intelligence community believes that the North Koreans also have the ability to put a nuclear warhead on one of those missiles. That's miniaturizing the nuclear warhead, getting it small enough. That means that they have the capability of hitting the United States with a nuclear ballistic missile. What is their longest so, range missile that we know about right now, Rebecca? Well, there's um, there's the Typo Dong, there's the KNO-8, which is the mobile ICBM, the mobile ICBM is really scary because um, unlike the, the, the stationary missiles that they can just you know set up and take a couple days to do that, the KN-08 is something that they roll out um, on trucks and can pop off. And so we've, we've seen some, some concerning evidence that now that they've mastered the ICBM capability, they could also um, you know, make that capability mobile, which is especially concerning. Um, but again, we've been watching this happen over the years where they're gaining this capability, um, and, and Republican and Democrat administrations have not been able to slow the program. And so now we're seeing a lot of increased rhetoric um, coming out of the Trump administration because we're not, the problem is no longer preventing uh, a nuclear um, ICBM capability. Now it's rolling it back and preventing them from actually thinking that thinking that you know it would be wise to threaten the United States with one. We're speaking to Rebecca Heinrich. She's at the Hudson Institute. She's an expert on counterproliferation, missile defense, and nuclear deterrence. Rebecca, to that end, uh, you just said now it's about rolling it back and dealing with the reality. What do we, I mean, the Japanese, I saw a report say that they would be willing to shoot down on our behalf a missile that was headed towards Guam. Who has missile defense capabilities in the region of our allies that come into play here? And how good is our own missile defense capability against an ICBM? That is a great question, but we've got, um, of course, the FAD battery that be- had initial deployment to South Korea, but it hasn't finished its deployment. Um, that only takes care of short-range ballistic missiles headed towards South Korea. Um, so it's not going to handle the ICBM stuff or the IRBM stuff, the intermediate range ballistic missiles. We do have um, cooperation with the Japanese on the sea-based system called the Aegis Weapon System, and SM-32A is the missile that we have on there. That can take care of um, the longer range, but not quite ICBM capability missiles. Um, and we do have high confidence in that. But again, with missile defense, you neither need you need more the more systems you have in place the better so that you have more opportunities to hit at these um, incoming missiles. As far as the homeland goes, we do have a missile defense system in place that covers the entire fifty states. Um, doesn't cover our territories, but it covers our the entire fifty states. We can thank President Bush for that. He got the United States out of the ABM treaty that allowed us to start building that. However, President Obama rolled the system back, and so we are um, not as capable as we could be. Um, So now President Trump uh, made a statement today saying that he wants to significantly increase missile defense. That's exactly the right thing that we have to do now. Um, We're going to have to rush to field these systems and make sure the system is as good as it can be in the near term. What's the name of that system again, Rebecca? The ground-based mid-course defense system. It's kind of a mouthful. It's called GMD. That's the Homeland Missile Defense um, System of our entire global missile defense. And um, so we've got interceptors in both Alaska and California, and they're giant missile interceptors. I like to think of them as bullets that are going to hit incoming missiles. The more bullets we have in the chamber, the better chance we have at actually, you know, hitting incoming missiles. So we may see a rush to field more of them, 
Um, but again, we're behind because President Obama cut about a billion dollars out of the program in his first couple of years in office. Rebecca Heinrichs of the Hudson, Hudson Institute, missile and uh, counterproliferation expert. Rebecca, always great to have you. Thanks. He's back with you now, because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. The opioid epidemic is getting a lot of attention right now, and it absolutely should. As I've been talking to you on this show for months about it, uh, we have 50 to 60,000 expected to be killed from overdoses in the last 12 months. Uh, It is a true epidemic, and it involves a number of factors. But I wanted to take a few minutes today to talk to you about uh, another public health crisis, another epidemic that I'm sure almost all of you have some personal contact with, meaning either you or a family member or a friend uh, at some point in your life has has dealt with it, and and that is alcoholism. There's a a study out that did almost 80,000, that had almost 80,000 participants Uh, And it was experts at the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism conducting this study. And they are saying that this is being overshadowed by the opioid epidemic and marijuana legalization. Uh, And I and I think that's true. But this is actually the public health and emotional and psychological health crisis that is most likely to affect all of us at a different time in one way or another. Here's what they, they say. Here's some of these statistics. About one in eight people, according to, remember, 80,000 people were, were studied in this. So this is a good survey sample size. One in eight Americans are alcoholics. Um, and they tried to give some pretty clear metrics as to what constitutes. And, you know, women in particular showed huge increases. And this is an 11-year Almost 80,000 person study. And in that study, 83.7% increase in alcohol use disorders for women. And individuals who were 45 years to 64 years old and 65 years and older had 81% and 80 and 106% increases in alcohol disorder. People are mass medicating with alcohol. And when you look at what the, the studies are and, and how they're breaking this down, I think a lot of people would be surprised to know that if you have if you have five or more standard drinks one day, once a week, you're in a high-risk category. If you're a woman, you are in the high-risk category if you have four or more drinks one time a week. So I think for a lot of people, uh, and, and I put myself in this category, our perceptions, or at least I used to, our perceptions as to what constitutes alcohol abuse are not in line with the medical reality. Now, a big part of this, I think, is the college culture, which is just alcohol-soaked. And I mean, I can speak from experience in this regard. Uh, I was pretty mellow among my friends, but Amherst College was a very hard-drinking school. It's cold, it's up in the Northeast, and there's you're in a little town in the middle of nowhere, and people get lit. I mean, they get wasted. But then in adulthood, it changes a bit. And it's so accepted in college that no one even knows who's an alcoholic and who's not because it's everywhere. But then when you have 
job and responsibility as an adult, and then, of course, you get married and have a family, you start to look for things. You start to see things differently. And I will tell you that I had thought that alcohol abuse, I had this caricature, I had this caricature in my head of a person who sitting alone at a bar, you know, with a red, bright red nose and, you know, hey, you know, what are you doing? You know, hey, at 11 a.m. just drinking scotch and some depressing blues music playing on the jukebox. And that's what I thought of. Or, or you know, a, a, a mother who, you know, couldn't get out of bed. You know, you kids go yourself, you know, and just drinking out of the bottle and slurring her words. And, and I know that's real. That is That is a real phenomenon. I mean, there are people who are like that, which... I think is part of why we think of alcoholics in that way. The almost the almost cartoonish alcoholism is what most of us think of um, until we deal with it, until you see it. And then, of course, it's all too real. It's all too terrifying. It destroys lives, destroys careers, destroys families. Uh, but what we don't know or what we, what we don't often have an understanding of, and, and I unfortunately learned this uh, in my own life, um, from a, a previous relationship that I had been in years back, which is that you can be around someone and they normalize their alcoholism. And it's, it's very subtle and it doesn't, it's not something that is necessarily uh, right in your face and obvious because people know, even alcoholics know that their behavior is a little strange, at least at first, and it can be gradual. You know, people refer to alcoholism as a disease, and that's absolutely true, but we need to really think of it more. Remember, one in eight people, everybody, that's the latest statistic, one in eight, uh, you're looking over over 10% of the population right now in this country estimated to be alcoholics. So we talk about it as a disease, and, and we really should think of it in those terms, but I think we need to extrapolate even more, need to pull even more out of what that means. A disease can go through phases. A disease can quickly and suddenly get worse. A disease can lie dormant in your system and then all of a sudden start up. Uh, a disease is something that people can learn to live with and mask and hide. And what I didn't know until I experienced it from someone in my own life is that it, if someone is an alcoholic, they are often able to mask the behavior in ways that are uh, very, it can be difficult to detect, especially when you're around someone, because nobody wants to think, especially if you're really close to someone, no one wants to think that someone's an alcoholic. No one wants to tell them that they're an alcoholic. And uh, you oftentimes, I, I think I was, I was guilty of this in my own life. I just explained away things. You know, I thought, oh, she's just... She's just blowing off steam. Mm, you know, you always got to think about that. Okay, well, is this, a, is this how that person blows off steam every day? And look, I'm not, I'm not the hall monitor here for alcohol. I like tequila. I like wine. I like to drink here and there. But I always view it as, I view it as a drug. I mean, it's a legal drug, but it is a drug. A caffeine is also a drug. I love chocolate. I mean, but we need to understand that these have real biochemical reactions in our bodies, that they can be addictive, that they are powerful, profoundly powerful substances, especially when abused. And there's a level of, uh, there, there's a level of gray area. And that's what, you know, we all know that somebody goes, ah, you know, I'm at the bar and I'm drinking and, you know, you'll get out of here. And we all know that's an alcoholic, right? We understand that. You know, I'm on my 10th drink. It's 2 p.m. I mean, and, and that's terrible. And that person's, 
drinking their life away, right? But we know that's an alcoholic. But what about what about the uh, beautiful and successful uh, career woman, or the you know the charming and uh, you know upwardly mobile career guy who, whenever their significant other comes home, you know there's a, there, there's always a bottle of wine open and there's always a little more gone than one glass, and that's every day. And you say, okay, well, a glass of wine a day is fine. All right, but is it really a glass or is it is it three? Is it is it a glass of wine after work or is it a bottle of wine after work? And are they always looking for an excuse to drink more? Are they always coming up with, oh, you know, we, we should have friends over for, you know, for wine and cheese. Well, that sounds certainly harmless. We do this. Okay, but are we having friends over for wine and cheese so that we can get a couple of cases of wine and our friends only drink half a bottle and all of a sudden we have this wine all over the house and then the wine very quickly disappears. I I know I'm almost sounding conspiratorial, but that's really what it is. Alcoholics are engaged in a conspiracy against themselves and their loved ones. They just don't know it because they're hiding it and they find ways to make it harder to detect and they find ways also to elevate the pain and the aggravation of trying to address it with them, and again, I, I, this I'm speaking to you from experience. So this is a, this is what I had to deal with, and it was, um, it was traumatizing. It really was when you are dealing with someone, especially when you're very close to someone, when you're thinking about maybe getting engaged, and you find out that someone has an alcohol abuse problem, and it's been getting worse. I think there's also a sense of guilt, and I don't know if anyone else who's dealt with an alcoholic feels this, but you. You've been around this person, and I, anyone who's close to me in my life, I feel at some level or another responsible for their well-being. Uh, you know, not all my friends, I mean, but you know, as much as I can be, but, you know, my family members, I'll do anything for them. I mean, I, you know, my team is my team. My people are my people. I feel very responsible for uh, making sure they're okay. And for someone to be really close to me and to have had a problem like this and for me to not detect it, I felt like I had failed. Um, and so I think there was also a willful blindness to it. And I'm telling you all this because I know we're talking so much about the opioid epidemic, but we also need to have a much more frank conversation about the alcohol epidemic. Not that I'm not, pro- I'm not for prohibition. Like I said, I like drinking tequila. I like a good glass of whiskey. But people need to know what the signs are that there's a problem. People need to understand that it's not always obvious. I didn't know this. I thought of myself as a pretty worldly well-read, you know, uh, on-the-ball kind of a guy. And one day I woke up, I mean, it wasn't just one day, but I basically woke up in a, in a long-term relationship that I thought was heading towards marriage and figured out that I had a bar that had been created in my apartment that I didn't even really know about. I mean, like a stash of booze uh, that had been accumulated over time that I wasn't drinking, okay, and that uh, I had a person who was having problems with her career and, you know, heading in this downward trajectory. And I wasn't even, and I just thought that it was bad luck. And I just thought that, you know, she had had a couple of tough breaks and realized, oh no, she's self-medicating with alcohol. She's dealing with other problems via alcohol and that's having bad effects. And she was an alcoholic. And when you've been around an alcoholic, it, it leaves a real mark on you. It's not something you ever forget. It's not something that just, uh, passes and you know you you are able to move on with things it it hurts it is tough Um, and like I said it's a disease that 
can be sneaky. It's a disease that can evade detection. And the people who have it oftentimes will try to, and they'll, oh, it'll be, I'm just a social drinker. I just drink to blow off steam. I just, okay, well, those, those are all possible, but is that really true? Another big problem, I didn't know this, but someone who is a, a functioning adult who gets blackout drunk uh, has a problem. Because, I mean, maybe you could say, okay, once someone just, they didn't need and they made a mistake. But you can tell the difference when someone's decided that they're just going to lean into it and finish off a whole bottle of whatever, uh, whether they're at a party or they're in front of family members. And they are clearly aware of what will happen, but they don't really care about the consequences because it feels too good. They like it too much. Being an alcoholic doesn't mean drinking every day. I didn't know this. And, and perhaps some of you are kind of thinking, Buck, you know, you, you got to pay a little more attention to what the warning signs are or whatever. I, I thought that an alcoholic was somebody who had to drink all the time. And if they didn't drink, they went into withdrawal. And it was obvious to everybody around them they're an alcoholic. That is true. But there's also a much broader spectrum of alcohol abuse and alcoholism than that. And it is a true national crisis. I mean, when you have 10% of the population, we're talking about 30 to 40 million people in this country who are alcoholics right now. Uh, worse than any drug problem we have. Uh, oh, the health costs are astronomical. Cirrhosis of the liver, uh, all the things. that It's terrible for you to become an alcoholic, as you know. I mean, it does any, causes any number of, of cancers and, and malfunctions in the body. And people drink themselves to death, of course. People overdose on alcohol, too. Uh, but we don't we don't talk about it. We don't know about it in this way. Yeah, sure. I remember in health class when I was in high school, they'd say, you know, if you have more than seven drinks a week, okay. Well, what if I what if I'm what if I'm with a, a young woman, and every time that we drink, and we only drink once or twice a week, but she has five or six drinks and gets annihilated, is is she an alcoholic or is she just somebody who likes to party? Likes to party is a very broad range of activity. I can tell you. And, and it's very easy for people to turn that around, especially millennials, people in their 20s and 30s and into their 40s. And it's, you know, why can't you, why aren't you more fun, man? You know, why, why, why are you got to be that guy? I don't want to be that guy. I like people to have a good time. I, I know everyone's working hard. Everyone's got their struggles and they want to let loose and enjoy themselves. I like to party too. I just don't use the word party as an excuse to abuse myself physically with alcohol and put myself in precarious positions and allow it to affect my career, my relationships, and my life. And look, I'm very fortunate that I have parents who are very responsible about alcohol, and I know it runs in families, so I'm lucky in that regard. Like I said, it's a disease, right? A disease that can be passed on from parents. But I got a lot of Irish in my background, too, and there's, there was some drinking uh, with some of the relatives, so problem drinking. Um, and I, I just, I guess I wanted to share with some of you that I really tend to think that when it comes to a lot of issues, and it includes health. I spend a lot of time reading about health. I'm an amateur, but I think I'm a pretty highly ranked amateur. At least that's what I think. Uh, I, I was completely blindsided by alcoholism that was right, literally right next to me for a long time. Uh, and it was a shock to the system when it finally, uh, I mean, it ended a relationship. It changed the course of my life. And part of me still feels guilty that I wasn't able to do more to avert it, to um, to handle it before it got out of control. And but then again, it's it's very difficult. Um, you know, when you're trying to help somebody who's going through that, you better be in for 
some, you're in for some tough stuff. Uh, I can promise you that. So it's unfortunate, but it's true. So I, that, that's my, I just saw this study and I know we're talking so much about opioids and marijuana legalization, but the alcohol epidemic is the, is the greatest public health crisis based on a substance in this country. And we all, I know right now, a lot of you listening, you, you know, you know, someone, maybe someone very close to you, you know, someone who's got the problem and the good news is there are resources and there's more information out there than ever before. And people can get help and they can get, uh, they can get, you know, they, they can get saved. Basically they can, uh, turn it around. But if they don't, it's a really quick way to destroy someone's life. Unfortunately, it's a really quick way to ruin a lot of what's good and what's best uh, in our lives. So the alcohol epidemic, uh, I, the, 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 that's a that's a war that I've been a part of, my friends. Um, I've seen it. I've seen the casualties. Well, team, I know I ended on something of a uh, serious and, and a personal note tonight. So with that, I will say that tomorrow is Friday, and so we can look forward to a uh, light, well, some parts of the show will be lighthearted. Given the news cycle lately with North Korea and everything else that's going on, I think it's a fair bet that we'll have some serious news items to discuss, as well as I'm hoping some more movement, at least in discussion about upcoming policy. I mean, this is a bit of a preview, but... Once we come back, or rather, not we, because you and I still have to keep working, once Congress comes back from their extended vacation, it is going to be a mad dash to get things done that fall within the Trump agenda, the promises that were made during the primary, the general campaign, and since the president has taken office. And this infighting we see between McConnell and Trump, uh, that's going to have to take a back seat to getting stuff done and taking action that is worthwhile and action that is beneficial for the American people. The squabbling among our political class and the elites inside the Beltway in D.C. cannot be a smokescreen for ineptitude and for broken promises. And so that's why we have to make sure that we keep an eye on what's happening, hold them accountable, 